And now I am delighted to introduce what is one of my personal favorite grand rounds of the year. Uh, this is an opportunity where we invite our Providence St. Vincent internal medicine residents to share the outstanding work that they have done throughout the year and put together specifically for the Oregon American College of Physicians uh, meeting. This is normally uh, a yearly event uh, and a joyful live conference, um, which has been transitioned to a virtual format over the last couple of years. And we do have one of our residents who will be giving an oral presentation um, in the live virtual conference this very night. Um, so thank you, Dr. Spanix, for that later today. Um, we have a group of about eight or so uh, residents who will be presenting their outstanding work. Many of these are clinical vignettes, some of the most interesting and challenging cases in our hospital throughout the year. And we'll also be hearing excellent work done in research and quality improvement. So thank you all for your hard work and for sharing. I'll invite the residents to briefly introduce their name as they begin their presentation. Uh, and first we'll hear from Dr. Jacob Feeney. Hello, my name is Jacob Feeney. I'm a second year here at Providence St. Vincent Medical Center. Um, my poster presentation is about a rather challenging case that we had when I was on the wards here. Uh, and it's a case of Hashimoto's encephalopathy. Um, so Hashimoto's encephalopathy is a rare, difficult, and often nebulous diagnosis, uh, though it's treatable and largely reversible if it's caught early. My case was a bit of a head scratcher. We had a 44-year-old woman with a history of anxiety and depression who presented originally with acute changes in mentation and cognition with vertigo about 10 days prior to admission. The initial workup was pretty much pan-negative with the exception of some subclinical hypothyroidism and isolated cerebellar atrophy on imaging. Um, she continued to worsen through her hospital's uh, stay, eventually uh, ending up with a starvation ketosis and needing Foley catheterization for urinary retention. And this presented quite the diagnostic dilemma. Was this a primary psychiatric diagnosis or was something else going on here? So we sent referrals for psych and neuro um, and they recommended that we start pulse dose steroids to see if this would help after ruling out infection, of course. Um, she started to improve after the pulse dose steroids. However, this prompted IVIG uh, administration with the presumptive diagnosis of antibody negative autoimmune encephalitis. After the IVIG was started, the patient started to again worsen, um, and this prompted resumption of steroids again with subsequent improvement until discharge. Uh, it took 19 days for the, final, for the final diagnosis of Hashimoto's encephalopathy to return, and that's when the TPO antibodies finally returned positive. Um, and her hospital stay was 27 days in total, with five days spent in, in IRF afterwards. So what is Hashimoto's encephalopathy? It's a, it's a rare treatable cause of altered mentation. Uh, its typical symptom onset is months, though rarer cases can progress more quickly. If it's uh, left untreated, uh, they often have rapid fluctuations and changes in cognition, and it can lead to seizures or even coma. Um, treatment is steroids by definition, uh, and the tricky part about this is when we're managing acute changes in mental status, we always have to rule out infection before administering steroids. So the take home for me in this case is that acute changes in, in mental status should be evaluated for potentially reversible and treatable etiologies, including perineoplastic, autoimmune, and even Hashimoto's encephalitis. Inappropriate labeling of psychiatric diagnoses when there's a diagnostic uncertainty can lead to poor outcomes and lifelong stigmatization for these patients as well. And of course, don't forget to rule out infection. Great, thank you so much, Dr. Feeney. Um, he is back off to the ICU. Thank you for caring for our patients.
Um, and next, uh, I would invite up Dr. Chen. Hi, my name is Jimmy Chen, and I'm excited. Maybe it's just go. gonna play. Oh, right here. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess the ghost can't do the presentation for me then. Um. <laughs> Hi, everyone. My name is Jimmy Chen. I'm an intern here at Providence St. Vincent Medical Center. I'm excited to present my research titled A Comparative Analysis of EHR Use Between Provider Documentation Using Prom-Based Charting Versus Free Text Charting in Progress Notes. I'm sure most of you wouldn't say that your most enjoyable part of your day is charting in the EHR or the electronic health record. And quantitative, quantitative data has shown that um, EHRs are time consuming to use and a significant contributor to provider burnout. Anecdotally, many providers have reported that palm-based charting or PBC results in decreased cognitive burden on data review and documentation compared to standard free text charting, which includes APSO and SOAP note formats. However, this has never been shown in any study the purpose of our study was to use quantitative data to evaluate differences in EHR, EHR use between providers documenting with PBC versus free text charting. So first, I manually reviewed the EHR in the Providence um, Internal Medicine EHR for primary care providers in Portland who did not work with residents, and I categorized each provider as documenting with mostly prom-based charting or free text. Overall, I found that 10 providers use PBC and 19 use free text. As seen in figure two, PBC consists of documenting both the subjective and the AMP in different interfaces, most notably the AMP notes in the problem list. On the other hand, free text charting involves all text input into a single interface. Signal data, a compilation of EHR metrics extracted from EPIC using audit log data, was extracted from October 2020 to 2021 for all these providers included in the study. The metrics are listed in figure one and include time spent in notes, documentation length, et cetera. I then used a multi univariate multivariate logistic regression approach to analyze each metrics association with documentation style. Statistical significance was determined using a student's t-test with odds ratios and their 95% intervals, confidence intervals calculated for each coefficient. Each metric was then used as the independent variable in an individualized logistic regression and statistically significant metrics were then input into a multivariate regression. These metrics were input into a multivariate regression to assess whether they would remain statistically significant and independently associated with prom-based charting on further analysis. So on univariate analysis, we found that increased time spent in notes and shorter documentation length were statistically significant with and associated with prom-based charting. These variables remained independently and statistically significant when input into a multivariate regression. So overall, there are three key findings from this study. The first is that increased time in notes was significantly associated with providers using prom-based charting compared to those who use free text documentation. This is not surprising as prom-based charting requires jumping across multiple interfaces to chart. Second, there was a significant difference in documentation length despite no statistical difference in progress note length. The exact reason for this remains unclear, but one possible explanation may be that the audit log data counted AMP notes as an individual note compared to progress notes, which are much longer. Third, there was no significant difference in time spent in chart review between either documentation style, which does go against anecdotal reports of data suggest or anecdotal reports of data review efficiency for prom-based charting, though the benefits of prom-based charting may not have been fully elucidated from this study alone. So overall, this study suggests that EHR use is unique, variable among individual providers, and does not appear to be explained by documentation style alone. Oh. Well, Further data, further research, and more refined metrics are needed to study this um, phenomenon further and how providers use the EHR. Thank you. Um, so how was chart review time measured? Because some people do their chart review like mm -hmm. 
at the beginning of the session, not sort of while they're seeing the patient and maybe that. Yeah. Because I'd still like to believe that problem-based charting is worth it because yeah. it does take more time in my mind. No, I think that's a great question. And um, a lot of research has been done trying to quantify how providers, like the times providers spent in chart review um, using, and it's, there's poor like reproducibility basically. And so the way that these, the Epic signal data did it, they tried to calculate minutes per appointment. So within that time frame. So it's entirely possible if you were reviewing before the appointment that that data was missed. Great, thank you. Great, thank you so much, Dr. Chen. And next I will invite up our resident, Dr. Alexandrova. <laughs> Hi, everybody. So um, my name is Lizzie and this is Tatiana. Um, we're residents who are involved with the project called Prevention of Delirium through, through Mobility. Um, and we took over this project from two of our other residents, Silvis and Joe, who graduated and are now hospitalists. So the goal of the project was to decrease delirium th through increasing mobility in hospitalized patients. Our delirium prevention protocol was based on the hospital elder life program that was developed at uh, Yale University and showed a decrease in prevalence of delirium on hospitalized elder, elderly patients. Um, we used a similar delirium prevention protocol in our hospital. Interventions included range of motion, ambulation, increasing sensory stimulation, and were applied to hospitalized patients on one of the hospital wards here at St. Vincent. Program, the program was funded by a hospital grant, uh, which allowed us to hire two CNAs to do mobility work with the patients. We measured our progress by assessing conf uh, confusion assessment method, CAM, on a daily basis and compared scores from uh, the period before the intervention to the period after the intervention. We also looked at whether our intervention uh, decreased the length of stay and improved discharges to home as opposed to SNF, which is particularly important during the time of COVID. Now I'm going to go over the data um, in figures one to three. So we broke the compared categories into time frames, which included before the intervention, during the intervention, during COVID and post intervention. Uh, we compare delirium burden among these categories. And so if you look at figure one on X axis, we have days in the ACU, which is our intervention unit. And on Y axis, we have delirium burden. You can see that during the intervention, which is a green line, the delirium burden was the lowest when compared to other groups. Prior to the intervention, which is a red line, delirium burden was among the highest in the comparable groups. Dark blue line depicts a period when intervention was still taking place, but COVID just started. And with that, one of our mobility aids left, and there was a lot of variability in the delirium data. We also looked at how our project affected the length of stay, which is shown in figure two. Medical A is an intervention unit, and you can see that the length of stay remains stable over the time uh, on that unit, which is depicted in the red box. In comparison, the length of stay in identical unit, medical B, which is in the blue box, increased over time. Comparable units reflect a national statistic that showed an increase in length of stay um, overall, uh, within the hospitals over the last years. And lastly, we looked at where our patients were discharged to. And so looking at figure three, you can see that patients who received our intervention during COVID had a higher rate of discharge to home when compared to the identical unit. Specifically, there was a 6% in discharges to home rather than to the skilled nursing facility. Estimated reach of effect is 54 patients who went home instead of going to the skilled nursing facility. Given the average length of stay at skilled nursing facilities about seven to 10 days, and the average cost of stay is about $450 per day, this is approximately $243,000 in savings. So uh, finally, we did look at some qualitative measures as well. We surveyed our patients who reported that walking allowed them to actively engage in their recovery and viewed it as a benchmark of their progress so they were hospitalized. 
Um, in conclusion, delirium prevention protocol through mobility showed the associate, uh, associated decrease in delirium, decreased length of stay, and increased discharges to home. This resulted in cost savings to the system uh, and to patients. It also allowed patients to actively participate in their progress and improve their hospitalization stay. Our next step is to work on incorporating this project in, into the permanent hospital budget. Wow, many thanks to both Dr. Severson and Dr. Alexandrova. Outstanding work making a real difference for our patients here and exciting to see that the hospital would like to broaden the scope of your work. Um, I invite any questions. Sorry, I might have missed this, but um, the future steps, where are we right now with this project? Do we have CNAs that are walking patients right now? And kind of, yeah, where are we and what's the future look like for this? Good question. So COVID has definitely changed things a little bit in our ability to hire. We're still working on it, but hoping that we'll be able to hire in the next year or so. We don't have anybody right now. We don't have anybody right now with COVID. Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of the funds were frozen for the project when the COVID started. And so the funds that were allocated for the project were actually sort of were reallocated to other needs during the COVID time. So we hope once this COVID is stabilized a little bit that we can uh, find the funds again within the hospital and hire more, more CNAs. The CNAs that were working on the project were currently working as a CNA on the floor, uh, which was not their role before. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Great. And then I will invite up our resident, Dr. Tuan Pham. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Tuan. I'm a third year resident here at St. V's. I've been here for three years, obviously. Um, Today, I'll be presenting my QI project um, titled uh, Increasing Statin Utilization in Diabetic Patients Through My Chart Message. Uh, just some quick background. Um, in 2017, roughly uh, 34 million Americans were affected by diabetes and its complication, costing over $300 billion in medical costs as well as reduced productivity. Um, and furthermore, diabetes significantly increased the risk for cardiovascular uh, complications as well as myocardial infarction. And so, you know, recent studies, including the CARDS primary prevention studies, uh, um, showed significant benefit in stands in diabetic patients. And so the American Car College of Cardiology recommends you know, for those who has diabetes between the age of 40 to 75 and LDL uh, level of above 72, uh, to be on a stand regardless of ASCB score. Um, but despite this recommendation, only about 53% of eligible patients are uh, started treated in the United States. So my project was uh, an uncontrolled before after study at an outpatient medical home uh, residency clinic seeking to improve statin prescription rate through the use of my chart messaging. Um, the inclusion criteria is based, based on uh, ACC recommendation and uh, those with access to my chart. So my chart message as seen in figure one was sent to eligible patients explaining the benefit of statin in preventing heart disease and inviting patients to schedule an appointment with their uh, PCP to discuss statin therapy. This my chart message was uh, carefully crafted uh, and written in patient's friendly language in order to reach a wider audience. Uh, and education was also provided to residents and faculty as well. And, um, you know, stat initi initiation rate was uh, followed over the span of the first three quarters of 2021 for response and data were tracked quarterly. Um, so we initially observed 380 uh, patients with diabetes between the age of 40 to 75 in the pre-interventional period from quarter four of 2019 to quarter four of 2020 and selected 75 patients who were eligible um, for, for intervention but not previously on a statin. Of those 75 patients, 57 uh, patients had access to my chart and, and um, the my chart message was sent to them. 
In the post-interventional period, we observed an average of 7.6% increase in statin prescription per quarter, as seen in figure two. Uh, in figure two, quarter two of 2021 had the most statin initiation rate at about 12%, and quarter three of 2021 had uh, least, which about 3%. Overall, 13 out of 57 patients were started on a statin. So in conclusion, um, my chart message, uh, messaging facilitated nearly one in four patients uh, to start on a statin, possibly reducing the downstream cost of cardiovascular complications uh, in patients with diabetes. Uh, I'd like to, to emphasize the, you know, the strength of this intervention. Basically, it's low cost. It costs nothing. Um, except my blood, sweat, and tears, um, which obviously cost nothing. Um, so, uh, meaning that nearly any institution can implement this as long as they have an electrical, uh, a, a electric medical record or, or system. Um, and based on our data, uh, my chart message appears to be most effective within the first uh, three to six months following intervention, um, as there were a few new uh, prescriptions in quarter three of 2021. So a yearly letter may be reasonable um, for, for those patients who are eligible. And uh, future projects and future direction will seek to consider disparities such as race, gender, social economic status, and health uh, care literacy to address these uh, you know, inequities and, and promote like uh, equity in our uh, vulnerable populations. Thank you, everyone. Great, thank yeah. you for your work, Dr. Pham, and showing a difference with such a low cost but effective intervention um, and also thinking about next steps for patients we may miss. Um, looks like we may have a question in the audience and I invite any others. Thank you, Tuan. This is such an amazing study because um, as a primary care doctor, it's sort of embarrassing to think that I was missing all these people. I'm looking at, so I have two questions. One is that I'm looking at your message that I can actually read from here, and it is very personal. Did they all come from you or did you change the language so that it came from each person's primary care physician? Um, so this is, I basically mass sent it out. So um, this is the same message to all 57 patients. Um, I, I guess what, like in terms of personal, I, I want to make it so that, you know, they, they feel like it's not like a, just like an advertisement, a mass um, letter. And so that's why I crafted in that way. Yeah, it's very personal. And, and so I'm wondering, you know, because I think a, a mass impersonal would be less effective. Right. Um, and then the second question that I had was whether or not you think that the education of the physicians was also critical because of how we might respond when people reach back out. I definitely think so because like, you know, like I had a project before this and, I've, you know, I had to take a look at the feedback of uh, from the residents and basically, you know, like um, w without like educations, without, you know, follow up, you know, they're not the residents and faculty are not really doing it. And so like it's definitely to to remind resident faculty, hey, this is important. We need to do this in our primary clinic. It's really made a difference in, in my second project. So yeah. Great. Thank you, Dr. Pham. This may be outside of the scope of your outcome measures, but there is a question from our online audience wondering how many patients achieved an LDL cholesterol uh, less than 70? Um, and so that that data is um, under still under investigation. Um, I think that would be uh, interesting to take a look at that in a future study. Any anything else? Good. Thank you. Great. Many thanks. Um, next, I would invite Dr. Ramachandran to come for her presentation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, hi everyone, I'm Banu Ramachandran. I am a second year resident here in the program. I was also a medical student at OHSU and so I did some rotations here as a med student. It feels like I've been here a lot more than a year and a half. Um, yeah, 
So, uh, so my presentation is just a case report about uh, an interesting case who I had on wards. Um, this patient was a 50-year-old male daily cannabis user with type 2 diabetes on metformin. Uh, he also took nightly glargine insulin. He was on dulaglutide, as well as um, he had a diagnosis of familial hypocalceric hypercalcemia, and he had a history of heavy alcohol use. So he presented with worsening nausea and vomiting over a period of several months with increasingly frequent episodes. Uh, it turns out that his canagliflozin dose had been increased from 150 milligrams daily to twice daily just a few days prior to the admission. Uh, initial labs showed kidneymia with a beta-hydroxybutyrate of 4.12, a mild acidosis with a bicarb of 20, an anion gap of 19, and a venous pH of 7.33, and a blood glucose of 231, chloride of 102, and hypercalcemia to 13. His initial presentation therefore suggested ketoacidosis with a superimposed contraction alkalosis secondary to repeated emesis, likely masking the severity of the acidosis. The patient was treated with droperidol, metoclopramide, potassium supplementation, insulin, and fluid resuscitation, uh, just as we would for a diagnosis of DKA. In less than six hours, his chloride rose to 109, and in less than 12 hours, his acidosis had resolved. The following day, he resumed a diet and he returned home at his initial lower canagliflozin dose. Uh, once rare, the incidence of DKA in people with type 2 diabetes may have increased by as much as sevenfold since the introduction and widespread use of SGLT2 inhibitors. Diagnosis of DKA in the setting of SGLT2 inhibitor use may be delayed because the resulting DKA is more likely to be euglycemic DKA, and the euglycemia itself may cause the diagnosis to be missed. Nearly 4% of people with type 1 diabetes may experience an episode of DKA in a given year, but before the introduction of SGLT2 inhibitors, the incidence of DKA in people with type 2 diabetes was much lower, as little as 0.06%. So when SGLT2 inhibitors are used, blood glucose levels drop through an insulin-independent mechanism, the elimination of glucose by urination. And because the blood glucose falls, the patient's apparent insulin requirement then drops as well. You know, we look at their A1C, we see it's coming down, we think they don't need as much insulin. So ultimately, the patient's glucagon to insulin ratio increases. This in turn tends to increase lipolysis and may drive ketoacidosis. Additionally, the SGLT2 inhibitor itself results in water losses, and this may reduce the renal excretion of ketones, which further increases ketonemia. This patient had a venous pH of 7.33, and parameters for a diagnosis of DKA were technically not met. Arguably, however, this contraction alkalosis probably artificially raised the venous pH and masked the severity of the acidosis. So early recognition of his acidosis and ketonemia in the setting of this merely moderately elevated blood glucose was critical to his rapid improvement. And further, recognition of the role that his increased canagliflozin dose likely played in his presentation was essential. Canagliflozin has actually been more strongly associated with DKA than other SGLT2 inhibitors, and the reasons for this uh, were not clear to me in the literature. Uh, nevertheless, the literature also isn't clear on whether SGLT2 inhibitors, including canagliflozin, should never be started or resumed after an episode of DKA. Is this a true contraindication? So the care team decided for this patient that reduction to the prior dose was a reasonable approach, uh, pending the fact that the patient had planned follow-up within the week with his primary care physician, including a gastric emptying study. Um, one thing that I want to note for sort of future takeaway for me at least is that in the use of SGLT2 inhibitors and starting them in patients like this is that our patient was maybe at elevated risk of DKA for a variety of reasons. He had this daily cannabis use and some kind of possible contribution of cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. He had a history of heavy alcohol use. Uh, he maybe had gastroparesis and was being evaluated for that. And he was also using dulaglutide, which is GLP-1 receptor agonist, um, which could slow gastric emptying and further worsen all of his problems. And finally, our patient also had FHH, familial hypocalceric hypercalcemia. This has been linked to increased thirst and suggests that he also was maybe at increased risk of volume depletion. Um, that's it. Great. Thank you so much for this really important case as we see increased uptake of these medications with their exciting cardiovascular and renal outcomes, uh, a really important topic. So I'll await questions from the audience, but I just wondered if you had thoughts about 
a practical approach to patient education when we start these medications? Is the risk high enough that we should be doing something? Well, I wonder with this patient, you know, he was really committed to keeping his A1C as low as he possibly could. And he just he just didn't like the fact of having diabetes and how, you know, he was relatively young um, and didn't like all of these things. And I've met patients who also say that, you know, they just really hate taking their insulin and they hate the fact that they have to use insulin. And it might be worth talking about the fact that well, this medicine may help with all of these things, but it doesn't mean that we can stop insulin altogether. You know, that for you, unfortunately, is never going to be true. And I wish it weren't that way, but this is the way it is. So, right. It's a really individual decision making, yeah. patient by patient. Great. Any other thoughts or questions from our audience? All right. Thank you. Wonderful. I see Dr. Koshal making her way up to the podium. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. My name is Bethany Koshal. I'm one of the categorical interns here at St. Vincent's, and I'm excited to share uh, my case of vignette with you that challenges the traditional teaching paradigm for thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, also known as TTP. So jumping straight into our case, um, we had a 24-year-old otherwise healthy man who presented um, originally to his primary care physician with one week of painless hematuria and a mild headache and was referred to the emergency department um, after his lab showed severe thrombocytopenia with a platelet count of 20,000. Evaluation revealed a well-appearing man with physical exam and labs only notable for thrombocytopenia and an acute microcytic anemia. His initial presentation of the severe thrombocytopenia and anemia initially raised some concern for TTP, but was quickly deemed unlikely by both the medical and hematology teams um, because the patient seemed so well appearing and without signs of multi-organ um, involvement. There was even initial discussions on whether or not this patient should be admitted, but ultimately he was hospitalized for further workup. On hospital day two, a peripheral blood smear was read as normal, um, and his smear can be seen in figure one here. But given our, our concern and kind of unclear diagnosis, the slide was re-reviewed by our um, hematologist and hematopathologist, and they noted a few irregular cysticites, which indicated a microangiopathic hemolytic anemia. This patient's um, microangiopathic hemolytic anemia and unexplained severe thrombocytopenia were enough to presume a diagnosis of TTP, and he was urgently started on plasmapheresis and high-dose glucocorticoids. Within four days of treatment, his platelet count um, increased and stabilized above 150,000, and he was started on rituximab, um, discharged with close follow-up. His ADAMTS13 levels ultimately resulted back, showing severe deficiency and confirming the diagnosis of TTP. So why does this case matter? Um, traditional teaching of TTP to both medical students and residents paints this clinical picture of a critically ill patient with a pentad of fever, microangiopathic hemolytic anemia, um, thrombocytopenia, renal dysfunction, and neurologic involvement. However, retrospective studies have shown that less than 50% of patients with TTP will present with this classic pentad, um, and some studies even suggest that as few as 5% of patients will have this pentad, especially when um, in early on disease. And so this becomes tricky because the diagnosis of TTP can be challenging um, on admission given variable patient presentations, often nonspecific signs or symptoms, and because the definitive diagnosis is usually delayed um, due to pending ADAMTS-13 results. Timely and accurate diagnosis of TTP is important because it's an, it is a medical emergency. Untreated TTP has a mortality of approximately 90%, but with appropriate treatment, um, mortality drops down to 20, 10 to 20%. Patients with TTP can decline and develop end organ damage very quickly, so timely treatment um, with plasmapheresis is important as soon as TTP is suspected. It's important that our accurate assessment of clinical pretest probability reflects the current understanding that TTP patients um, most frequently will not present with the classic pentad. Because TTP is so rare, it can be easy to miss the initial diagnosis if the presentation doesn't fit our traditional illness script. Perhaps clinicians should reframe, reframe our traditional illness script for TTP and lower the thresholds for diagnosis. Um, and TTP should remain on the differential for patients who present with an unexplained anemia and thrombocytopenia, even if they appear generally well, um, to ensure 
prompt diagnosis, treatment, and ultimately enhance clinical outcomes for patients with this rare disease. Thank you. Great, many thanks, Dr. Koschel. Any questions from our audience, either here or online? Wonderful, presented with such clarity. Thank you, Dr. Koschel. All right, we have two more residents who will invite to present today. Next, we will be hearing from Dr. Joanna Beauvais. Okay. Hello, everyone. I'm Joanna Beauvais. I'm one of the third year residents here at Providence St. Vincent, and I'm going to talk to you about my quality improvement project on documenting goals of care discussions in our medical ICU. Um, this project's really important uh, given that about one out of five deaths in the United States occur in an ICU, and many of these patients have not previously had goals of care discussions prior to admission to an ICU. Um, I built on this uh, earlier uh, project uh, done by uh, Garrett Spencer and Heidi Reich, previous uh, residents here. Um, there was a metric developed by Providence St. Joseph Health to document goals of care discussions for patients who were in the ICU for five or more days. And I decided that I think admission to the ICU is a sentinel event and maybe at the time of admission, we should have these discussions. So um, my project was to link the goals of care conversations and documentation to the admission process in the ICU. And I aim to get um, greater than 80% of patients in the ICU um, to have a goals of care note within 24 hours of admission. Um, so uh, in October 2019, I asked resident physicians in the ICU to start um, documenting brief goals of care discussions, um, mainly code status, who would be the next of kin to discuss um, care with and um, uh, kind of basically what they thought of in terms of their goals of care. Um, I regularly did announcements at morning reports as well as sent email reminders to physicians working in the ICU to remind them up to perform this um, uh, goals of care discussion documentation. Um, and then in October 2020, um, because we were seeing great results with what Dr. Harkins was doing in the hospitalist group, um, with the hospitalist group in terms of embedding um, a goals of care uh, link in the HMP, we did so as well in the ICU HMP. So people, people could just click through the HMP and document there, and it would be automatically populating a central location for people to uh, read at a later time. Um, and then I conducted a cohort study of the patients admitted to the ICU. I included prior present prior patients before my um, project started um, as well to look at the trend. And we looked at demographic data. We looked at length of stay, code status, readmission rate, and inpatient mortality. Um, so for my results, about 3,600 patients were admitted to the Providence St. Vincent ICU between the start of the document, uh, goals of care documentation process in 2019 and between October 2021 when Alyssa, Alyssa Nelson wonderfully pulled the data and helped me organize it. Um, and we saw that about 50% of patients had a goals of care note documented at any time. Um, and uh, figure one, you can see kind of the trend. The black line is overall goals of care documentation in the ICU. The blue line is patients that received a goals of care documentation within the first 24 hours of admission. And the gray line is um, goals of care um, notes documented after um, admission. Um, and as you can see, we kind of got to about 40 to 60% of patients um, getting a goals of care note documented with, within their, the 24 hours of admission. But this kind of declined slowly into the later quarters of 2020 and in 2021, while the after admission goals of care notes were kind of increasing. Um, I don't have it outlined here, but there were no difference in the proportion of patients um, getting goals of care. Okay. 
Um, there was no difference in terms of ra uh, language, first language spoken, um, gender, or age in terms of who got a goals of care note and across any of the um, uh, outcomes that I measured, which was very interesting. And the main interesting thing was that there was no difference in patients who got a goals of care note and during admission and patients without a goals of care note in terms of readmission rate, in terms of length of stay, and um, those were kind of big outcome measures. So if you look at the table one, you can kind of look at no goals of care note in column one and goals of care note done on day one or within 24 hours. Um, there was very little difference in patients and in, in length of stay in the ICU and in um, observed over expected length of stay in the hospital. But there was a large difference between patients who had goals of care notes written after the first 24 hours of admission. They tended to be in the hospital longer. They tend to be re readmitted more often to the ICU. And, um, and they, yeah, those were the two big things. And then, um, there, the overall, if you had a goal of care note written at all, you are more likely to have DNR as your code status at discharge. You're more likely to have comfort care orders before discharge, and you're more likely to um, expire while admitted. Um, so overall, um, by linking the documentation of goals of care to the admissions process, I came up with a kind of reliable way to um, to document goals of care and have them available. Um, for patients despite uh, across all um, across all ages, genders, and primary language. Um, I did notice that the proportion of patients with goals of care notes completed within the first 24 hours kind of decreased towards the um, last year of the implementation of this project. And I'm curious as to whether this was because of competing priorities in the ICU time management or whatever. So I will figure out more about that. And then um, what I think is really interesting is goals of care written later on in a patient's admission, those patients seem to be the ones that are staying longer in the hospital and having maybe more utilization. And it's quite possible that if we write goals of care or have these conversations earlier, um, we might be able to mitigate that. Um, and I think those are kind of the big things. Um, I think more research is needed to look at cost in general, as to, and I'm not sure how to measure that exactly. Um, and also I wanna look at more um, work on disparities because I mainly just use language as my identifier for ethnicity because it's kind of not well documented. So there you have it. Great, many thanks Dr. Beauvais for this complex and important work. I know in our large electronic medical records, having a reliable location to go to, um, to be able to find prior discussions and documentation of goals of care is so useful. Um, any questions or comments from our audience? Ooh. I always have questions. <laughs> You're the best audience member. <laughs> um, this is really great. And I have, um, what kind of numbers are we dealing with? And would you be able to do a little qualitative search of the people who had a goals of care note after day one? Um, um, yeah. No, go ahead. Are you, is that it? That's yeah, because I can hypothesize a whole bunch of things. Yeah, I would say like in the hundreds, um, the yeah, so I'd say like, what do, what do I have? Almost 2,000 with goals of care notes documented out of the 3,600. So I have a lot. And then of those, I think there was um, 60 to 70% had it on day one and 30% had it on a different day. So I could dive deeper and look into kind of what was going on there. Um, another thing I didn't really capture very well and I didn't know how to capture was like the, com the medical complexity of each patient. Um, you know, whether they have like five HCC codes or whatever. I, I'm not sure how to capture that yet, but that would be helpful as well. Um, and whether or not they'd had prior conversations about goals of care in the past. Like, so if we'd looked at our green tile beforehand and say, hey, there's something there already, maybe that would be an indicator to being more open to it. Hi, now this is a really interesting study. I was curious to know too, you looked at comfort care at discharge following these discussions. I was interested to know if there was a way to project also, not within like this, these acute hospitalizations, but in the future, how many of these patients 
with these early goals of care discussions ended up going into palliative or hospice care and whether or not that occurred potentially sooner in the kind of trajectory of their medical course or not? That's that's a good question. Um, What I would say, interestingly, when I looked at this, hospice was very underutilized in patients who are in the ICU, which I was pretty shocked by. Like either they don't quite make it there or they end up going on comfort care beforehand. whether or not comfort care started earlier based on whether you had a goals of care conversation. I did not ask that question. It's a really interesting question though, because that would be great utilization of our resources to get it done earlier. Um, I do I do note that anyone with a goal of care note, we're more likely to have these things happen, comfort care, hospice, expiring <laughs> while inpatient. Um, but I'm not sure if I, I, I can't, I, I'll have to think about whether I could measure, like did I, decrease the time to that would be like multiple linear logistic regression that I'm not quite ready to do. <laughs> Great to many thanks Dr. Beauvais. Thank, Thank you for you. your work and your presentation. Uh, I did want to acknowledge a question from our virtual audience um, which asked um, regarding the prior case vignette um, had the TTP patient had a recent vaccination. Um, and I have to apologize because Dr. Koshel has gone back to care for our patients on the medical ward. I don't know if anybody else in the room is familiar with that case. Um, certainly we... familiar and I answer was no. We believe the answer is no. Um, an interesting question and obviously Um, a huge priority for vaccines these days and thinking about potential triggers of TTP, but um, no, it does not appear that there was an association in this case. Thank you. Great, and I know it is not always the easiest to be the very last to present, um, but many thanks to our outstanding intern, Dr. Allison Shu. Uh, I will bring up her presentation here. Great. Thank you, Dr. Shu. Thank you, Dr. Leacher. Um, so today I am going to be presenting a case of progressive quadriplegia in the setting of COVID-19 infection. Um, this is a case of a 63-year-old male who was unvaccinated against COVID-19 and who had limited past medical history who was actually transferred to our ICU from an outside hospital for progressive quadriplegia and respiratory collapse after one week of upper respiratory symptoms and a positive COVID-19 PCR test at the outside hospital. He also had associated symptoms of tingling, an inability to stand or walk, and progressive areflexia that was ascending. His initial LP that was taken in the emergency department when he presented was completely bland. and he was first actually treated with antiplatelet agents for a left carotid artery dissection and pseudoaneurysm that was found on CT angiogram. At transfer, Guillain-Barre syndrome was suspected on clinical grounds, and he received five days of IVIG therapy immediately upon arrival. He also completed courses of remdesivir and dexamethasone for COVID-19 pneumonia. And at our hospital, his repeat LP showed an elevated protein and his MRI C-spine was negative for any alternative cause of his symptoms. His weakness gradually improved over his hospitalization, but his course was complicated by delayed ventilator weaning and temporary tracheostomy placement due to diaphragmatic weakness. When he discharged home uh, on day 39, he actually was still requiring a Hoyer lift for transfer. So in considering this case, it's important to remember that Guillain-Barre syndrome is an acute inflammatory neuropathy that's triggered by cross-reactivity of infection um, with neural antigens. It has previously been reported in association with COVID-19, but the frequency and causation remains unclear at this point in the literature. Guillain-Barre syndrome typically causes a progressive bilateral um, ascending extremity weakness with hyporeflexia um, and is associated with an elevated CSF protein with low cell counts. But in up to half of cases, the CSF protein is normal during the first week, um, which really complicated the diagnosis in this case. 
initially stroke was thought to be the diagnosis due to a left carotid artery dissection. Um, however, he had bilateral and diffuse symptoms that would have required a brainstem or bilateral stroke to really explain this presentation. And we would have expected uh, a sudden rather than progressive weakness. Also, um, these types of strokes would typically cause associated symptoms such as diplopia, dizziness, or visual field deficits, among many others. And since he had a lack of these findings, um, this should have potentially pointed to uh, a different diagnosis earlier. When walking away from this case, some key points to remember are the fact that an early LP in Guillain-Barre syndrome actually can be negative. And so if the clinical syndrome um, leads you to suspect Guillain-Barre syndrome, um, you cannot rule it out simply by a negative LP. Also, it's important to remember that Guillain-Barre syndrome is a rare extrapulmonary presentation of COVID-19, and it should be in your differential for any patient who has, is positive for COVID-19 and has um, progressive bilateral weakness. Great. Uh, many thanks, Dr. Xu. We have a question here in the audience. Thank you, Dr. Xu. What a Um, I'm sure you ran across in your reading some of what we're facing in clinic as vaccine hesitancy and GBS as a worry from the vaccine. And I'm just curious if you have comments. What would you say to a patient who says to you, I don't want the vaccine because I don't want Guillain-Barre like my XYZ relative? Yeah, so I think that's a really good question. I think it for one thing, um, in my reading, I found that actually it's only associated with the adenovirus vector vaccine. So that would be Johnson & Johnson. So I think we can really reassure our patients that the mRNA vaccines, which also are generally more recommended anyway, um, are it, it's so rare. Um, and the complications from COVID-19 itself um, are, are so much more devastating. Uh, we should really emphasize to our patients that um, they should get vaccinated. <laughs> Great. Many thanks, Dr. Xu. That sounds like an excellent note to end on. And I just want to say a final thanks um, to all those have, who have attended, including um, virtually. Please join us next week um, for our regular medical grand rounds, a hearing from Dr. Evans on a discussion of epilepsy. And just a special thanks to all of our resident presenters um, who have done outstanding work amid challenging and exceedingly busy times. Um, so thank you. A huge round of applause. See you next week.